Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this artistic little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Sandy Shreve. Now, if you know Sandy, like I know Sandy, then you're going to know her as that multidisciplined artist that you've seen at various locations throughout the island over the years displaying her art. Well, we'll get to hear Sandy talk about that along with many other things. We'll get to hear Sandy talk about her time growing up in Sackville, New Brunswick a little bit. She will describe her 15-year career working for legal aid. She'll also talk about a book of poetry that she wrote based on a journal that her father kept for a five-month-long period working on a freighter, and this was over 75 years ago that he did that. As well, too, Sandy will talk about her involvement in birthing the Poetry in Transit project. All that and a lot more in a really, really great interview I had with Sandy. I just had such a wonderful time doing it, and... I haven't done one of these in a while, and it was really nice to get back and doing them. Through the summertime, I was busy. Other people were busy. A lot of people don't listen to podcasts during the summer. As well, too, I was working on the Gulf Islands Heritage recordings, which you'll be able to find on the podcast site if you scroll down. That took up a lot of time, and I'm back doing the podcast again and totally reinvigorated. Before we get rolling, I wanted to mention two things. The first off was that I made a change to the image that represents this podcast. What I've been using for the last year and a half was a picture I took at Gallant Point of two wooden posts on a hillside overlooking the ocean. And that was representative of two people having a conversation. I thought that it could use a little bit of a refresh. So on a dreary, rainy, dark evening a couple weeks ago, I fiddled around on the computer and came up with this new image and so you'll see it on the podcast site and if you take a close look there's five white dots on the left and three green dots on the right the white ones make up the shape of a p and the green ones make up the shape of i p and i represent pender island and then below you'll see a orange dot at the bottom and that is representative of you and of me the people who live on this island the background is blue and that represents the ocean that this island is on and there we go i really like the image i'm going to keep it for a while to come and yeah pretty happy with that and the other thing i want to mention as well too is that from now till the end of the year i'm going to be putting out a new podcast every two weeks and then hopefully i can keep that up in the new year as well too and i'd be more than happy to do that because i'm pretty excited to be back so Thank you for tuning in for this one. Thank you for all the positive feedback I get on these things. I really appreciate it. And without further ado, here's my interview with Sandy Shreve.
Here we go. We're actually into it right now. All right. All right, Sandy. All right. Welcome aboard. How you doing? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm a little bit nervous, like I told you. I haven't done one of these in a couple months, but uh, anyways, I'm feeling feeling great. It's a beautiful day out there. It's a beautiful uh, late September day right now. It's a gorgeous day. And this is a sweet studio. I like this. Thank It'll you. be even better when you get art on the walls. <laughs> yeah, currently just two pieces. Actually, I just added that to owl that's in the back there. It's but... a really nice drawing. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That was a value village find. Really? Yeah. I was going to ask if Amy Heggie did it. <laughs> no, no. I was. We were, we were shopping. We actually were visiting uh, some friends up island, and we asked where they got a piece of art, and they said, oh, a secondhand store. I, you know, somebody told me at the market the other day that they picked up one of my photo art pieces from the new to you and uh she said it was framed and everything and i said oh i was really excited i picked it up and i said oh which one and and i had a card of it and so she showed me and i thought you know i haven't printed a small print of that and i have the only print i've done of it which is a larger one so i think somebody must have framed the card (laughs) and she must be remembering it as larger than what it is that's funny. Yeah, yeah, I know. We've framed cards before. And, yeah, uh, oh, me too. Yeah. Me too. They can make really nice parts, especially when you can't afford original art. It, it's a great way to go. Definitely. Yeah. All right, there's your first tip, audience. Frame some cards. No, 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 no. No, don't do that. <laughs> no, no, do it, do it. But, but buy you, art as well, too. Yes, but <laughs> if you can afford to buy the art, please. <laughs> <laughs> do that as well. <laughs> but, you know, cards are, they're kind of the bread and butter of income. It's really important when people buy cards. Yeah. It's great. For sure. My wife does art as well, too. And yes. And sells, sells cards, definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, let's lead into the uh, the first traditional question that we get to on this podcast and uh, a question that I don't know the answer to right now, so I'm excited to hear this. What brought you to Pender Island? Oh, my gosh. Well, how far back do we go? We'll go back to the beginning. Back in the mid-'80s, I would guess, my husband Bill and I, and two of our friends, Arne Berry and Ann Sullivan, his partner at the time, the four of us decided to explore the Gulf Islands. And so we would go on summer vacations to various Gulf Islands. And for a long time, and, and sometimes for long weekends and stuff as well. So initially, we would go to Galliano and Salt Spring. And after a number of years, and I don't remember the first for sure what the first year was that we came to Pender. It might have been 89. It might have been 90. I'm not sure. But when we came to Pender, we happened to get here on a weekend when the garden club had an open garden tour. And so we went on the garden tour. And it was such a great way to see an island. We fell in love with it totally, head over heels. And... um, Oh, we saw things that people were people were growing artichokes, and we the four of us we went back to our gardens in Vancouver and we planted artichokes. It didn't work at all. <laughs> so anyway, that was the first time we we came to Pender. Now, Arne had a, a former in law who lived on the island. I think he was in real estate, and I'm not sure if he was here at the time or a little later. I've I've forgotten, but. But anyway, that was a connection. And we continued to to go on vacations to other islands, like Hornby in particular. And then one time we went to Maine. And the the place we wound up staying in in Maine didn't really live up to the promotion. And we sort of looked at each other and we thought, why are we still going to all these other islands? We like Pender best. 
So after that, we just, whenever we could come on a vacation to a Gulf Island, we came to Pender. And a few years later, Arn bought property here. And then I think it was in 2005, he and Anne finished building their house here. And so once they had built their house here and moved over, we came and we would stay with them. Yeah, so that's what brought us to Pender as visitors. We really, really liked the island, as I, as I said. And, uh, oh, the standing joke when we would come to visit would be, how long is it going to take Sandy to get to Pender Realty to check out property? But we were never in the position to own a second home, so it had to wait. <sighs> now, I'm originally from New Brunswick, and I lived in Vancouver for about 40 years with a few breaks. And I went back to the New Brunswick to visit family pretty much every year uh, for the last 30 years anyway. And I would get this intense hankering to have to go back. It was like sustenance, the landscape and, and all the rest of it where I grew up was very important to me. And so I had often thought, well, when I retire, maybe we could move back to little Sackville, New Brunswick. But Bill wasn't so keen. <laughs> and I hadn't given up on it over the years, except I finally decided to make a long... I, I'll just go on and on and on on tangents. If That's perfectly fine. This. No, I'm, this is good. I need, I need to cut this short a little bit. I spent several weeks in the Maritimes in 2011 and 2012 writing my last book. And uh, I think in the second chunk of time, I realized... Moving back to Sackville, it'd be fine for me. I still had high school friends. I had family. But Bill didn't have any connection to the place. And I thought, you know, that's probably not very fair. And then I, once I got to that understanding, I started thinking, well, is this a step forward for me or is it kind of a step backward? Because I realized that the severing that happened when I left the Maritimes in my early 20s has happened. I'll never get the, the connection to that place as an adult back. It's done. And I have a lot of connection here. And I, I've always realized I would be homesick for here if I went back there. If I stay here, I'll be homesick for there. Anyway, I came back and I'd been looking at property on Pender on the computer while, while I was back in Sackville. And I found this house and I thought, oh, I've always wanted to live in a house like that. So I came back and I showed Bill the house and I said, you know, I think I should go over and visit Arne when I get back and take a look at this house. And by then I had, I'd been retired for a number of years and I'd talked Bill into retiring in one more year, but I really wanted him to retire then because he was, he was 65. I thought you should retire. <laughs> so I came over and Arne had got hold of Rob Southey, Pender Realtor. Yep. who was here at the time. And Rob emailed me and said, what do you, what are you looking for? And so I told him, I gave him a long list. And so he put together a list of places. And uh, I came over and looked at houses and wound up making an offer on the house we're in. Bill was back in Vancouver thinking, she's going to put an offer on a house. She said she wouldn't, but I know she's going to. And then he'd think, she hasn't done anything yet. Lighten up. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, I was here, making an offer on a house. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, I, I basically decided when, when Sackville wasn't a possibility, Pender was going to be it. And I don't know, Rob kind of, I don't know how he knew. I'd never met him before, but he knew what I was going to get. And the first house he showed me was the one we're in. And I said, yeah, 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 it's beautiful. I don't care about a view. I just want light and this, that, and the other. It was a bit more than what I wanted to spend. So I said, show me the house I fell in love with. Show me the house I fell in love with. <laughs> and um, yeah, so he showed me all these houses. And finally, on day two, he showed me the house I'd fallen in love with. And the more I was there, the more I realized how much work it needed to have done to it. So I said, maybe I should look at that first house again. So we went in, and uh, I looked at him, and I laughed, and I said, I don't know why you wasted my time on all those other houses. Of course I want this one. Let's make an offer. Here we go. So I made an offer subject to um, Bill's approval. Oh, wow. And, well, I kind of had Yeah, for sure. That, definitely, right? right? Yeah. But did you write that in? Is like That was the actual oh, yeah. subject? Yeah, that, subject yeah, to was. my husband's approval. Yeah. For yeah, sure. It was and, one of the subjects. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for sharing all that because like, I was just trying to put myself in the position of somebody who's retired and it's it's a really big decision to mm -hmm. decide, well, where am I going to wind down after my working career and into my retirement and sounded as if it was a lot of thought that went into it. Well, I mean, I had been retired for what? Oh gosh, eight years by then? Because I was very lucky. I was able to retire early. And we had a lovely place in Vancouver. It was a really sweet place. People called it the Urban Cottage. And it was really delightful. It was near Trout Lake. And we were quite comfortable there, but it was very dark and very shady. And that never bothered me while I was working. But once I retired and I was at home all day writing or working on photography or whatever, it started to really get to me. And the city also was changing a lot. And I, I realized... When I moved here, oh, that was part of, that was segueing back. The whole thing about being anxious to get back to the Maritimes mm -hmm. every year, as soon as we moved here, that anxiety left. And I had always thought that I was in a tug of war, East Coast, West Coast. But really, I discovered the tug of war was urban rural. I oh. never really was a city person. And I just needed to get out of the city. And as soon as we moved here, it was like, ah, I'm home. Okay, well, let's follow the steps backwards to uh, Sackville here. So you said that you were living on and off in Vancouver for 40 years and you had a career there. What were you doing in Vancouver? Or I know that you had a few different jobs mm -hmm. along the way, as many people do. But what was your, uh, your job that you retired from? Um, I worked at Legal Aid. I was communications manager at Legal Aid when I retired. Okay. So maybe if you just want to expand on that for myself and other people, what uh, did that consist of? That involved liaising with the media and with spokespeople at Legal Aid. It meant putting together information sheets for the media, information sheets that would go onto our website, putting out press releases, helping um, other managers write different kinds of communications that would go out to the lawyers about legal aid, about the pay they're getting, about the whatever. I don't want to go into too much nitty-gritty because it's, it's a bit boring, really, in some ways. For a long time, it involved putting out the annual report, things like that. Okay. Lots well, of technical writing. Yeah, but it's interesting in terms of legal aid. I've never had to go to court or had legal aid. 
<laughs> so with working for this, this is an organization that helped provide mm-hmm. legal aid for people. It, it It is the organization in BC. It's called the Legal Services Society. Okay. And if you want to apply for legal aid, you apply to the Legal Services Society. Okay. Yeah. And so how long did you work for them? I don't... 15 years. 15 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a that's a big chunk of time in somebody's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any experiences that you could say or memories that you have from that position uh, that uh, you would like to relate to people of uh, maybe something that you can draw from from your experiences that describe uh, what it was like being involved with that organization? I liked being there. I loved the work. I loved being able to make complex legalese straightforward language. And I liked talking to reporters and giving them background before they actually did an interview with somebody. I liked the degree of appreciation I had from not just my boss or bosses, but also once I didn't start out in management. I started out in a union position. Um, It got changed to a managerial position as the job grew. And one of the things that meant the most to me, I think it was actually at my retirement party, one of the most strong unionists in the union came up to me and said, one of the things I did was an internal newsletter for the staff about, you know, policy changes and things that were happening. And and there were some really tough times that we went through. So I had to do information about layoffs and really tough stuff. And she came up to me and she said, Sandy, I want you to know that we always appreciated what you did in the newsletter because we always knew you told us the truth. And that meant an enormous amount to me because I wasn't trained as a communications person per se. I actually started out in journalism way, way, way back. And my golden rule in that job was no spin. Mm. And I was very, very lucky that both of the executive directors for whom I worked agreed with that. And so I was able to the advice that I would give them and, and all that stuff, it, it jived with what was important to me. And I could do that job because I felt that legal aid is a really important social service, so I felt like I was contributing. And I feel very lucky that way in my sort of the world of work that I wound up in. The job I had before I went to legal aid was also a very social service type of job in my view. And, and so I've, I always felt like I was contributing something valuable to the world through my work. So I guess, yeah, the biggest thing, as I ramble on, the biggest thing to me is that I was able to have a hand in helping something that matters move along. Hmm. And do it in an integral way, and as was uh, relayed to you by that woman at your retirement party. and yeah, you know, and it's you're not rambling on. I really want to allow space for people to be able to sort of go a little bit deeper into how they felt about certain things that maybe they haven't thought of in yeah. uh, in many years. And I'm finding this very interesting. One of the jokes at Legal Aid, one of the managers said at one point when when a draft of some notice was being put together or something, and he said, "Oh well, you got to give it. We need to get it sanitized." Sanitized. <laughs> And that kind of became the thing because I would always 
Um, one of the wonderful things about being trained as a reporter is you learn how to to write in pyramid style. Okay. And that's a really effective plain language style of writing where what goes at the top of your communication is the most important point. Mm. Now, how you do that is, you know, there's lots of different styles and all the rest of it, but it's a key thing. But when you're trained as an academic or as a lawyer and you're writing essays, the most important part usually comes near the end. So the main rewrite, the sanitizing I would invariably do was turn it upside down. Mm. <laughs> and and eventually people started to get it, and that was very rewarding, seeing them learn, oh, right, I have to get this up at the front rather than leave it to the very end. Because you can't expect people aren't necessarily going to read all the way to the end. Sure. So you put the least important stuff at the end. And um, the guy, I'm still friends with the guy who has my old job, and that job has changed a lot because I'm not a lawyer. He's a lawyer, and so they've changed his job to include some legal responsibilities. But he sent me a note the other day. It was a little anecdote about some conversation that happened, and I can't remember what the question was, but they were saying, is this right or is that right? And one of the staff members in the meeting said, well, Sandy said, Sandy always said that you say it this way. And somebody else said, okay, well, if Sandy said that, then that's what we're doing. Oh, funny. <laughs> so it's hilarious. I've got this little bit of lingering influence somewhere in the world. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, you, maybe we could like uh, have that take off. It could become like the, the new hot word in two or three years. It's like Sandy-tized. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> it sounds, it's, it's all, it was a joke and everybody knew what they meant, but... I suppose to, the other thing is it could almost sound like um, censorship, and it wasn't that at all. <laughs> no, it's just reprioritizing yeah. where the important stuff is supposed to go, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. and actually, that reminds me of uh, I heard one time from somebody who was uh, listening to CDs that musicians were putting into a <clears throat> music festival, and his advice was: don't put your best song at track number eight. Put all the stuff at the very beginning because if the first song doesn't sound good and the second song doesn't sound good, I'm not listening to the rest of this. That's right? right. And they'll and, never get to the good one. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned that you uh, you had a background in journalism, and uh, I wanted to know if uh, you wanted to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. That. That started out early. When I was young, I always wanted to be a journalist. And that came from a couple of sources. One was my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was the publisher of a newspaper in St. Stephen, New Brunswick. And when he died, my uncle, who was also my godfather, took it over. And so the, the newspaper biz was a little bit in the blood. And I'd always sort of that... I'd always eyed that. And I remember when I was a kid, there was a, a novel I read, and it was about a journalist. And I, I, it was probably some kind of a mystery adventure thing, but the journalist sort of played this really positive justice role. And I'd always been interested in justice ever since I was a little kid. And uh, so journalism sounded like a really cool job to me. So I'd always wanted to do that. And um, when I went to university, I... I um, I started off actually in phys ed because I wanted to move away from home to go to university. And the only way I could be sure of doing that was to go to take a program that wasn't offered at Mount Allison. Oh, wow. In Sackville. Okay. And, and I love Mount Allison University. In many, many ways, I regret not having gone there. But UNB was where I went, and it was great as well. 
I went into phys ed because the other big thing for me growing up was sports. Basketball and poetry were my life at that age. And so anyway, I went and signed up in phys ed and um, that really wasn't, that wasn't for me. So I changed faculties in my second year and uh, just did an arts degree and started working at the student newspaper. Then in my third year, my mom, by then she, she had moved out here. My dad died when I was a teenager and about five or seven years later, she remarried and the man she remarried lived in Victoria. So after my third year, she said, do you want to come to Victoria for the summer to BC? And I thought, Lotus Land? We're talking 1971. Who doesn't want to go there? Well, wait a second. <laughs> it was known as Lotus Land, the West Coast? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hippie, hippie years. All right. So yes, please. And so I came out to Victoria and then I went to summer school at UBC and I decided I wanted to do my final year at UBC. I didn't realize until I was a student advisor at SFU many years later that this is a no-no. No university wants to confer your degree if you have not done your final year at that institution. I did not know this. But UNB was very good to me, and uh, they said, yes, you can do your final courses at UBC. So that's what I did. And I did it part-time over two years because I worked on the student paper, the UBC, at UBC. And I was lucky to have done that because at that time, schools of journalism hadn't really, they existed, but they were just in their infancy. So the dailies tended to hire their junior reporters from student newspapers. So I got my first summer job in 1972 at the Victoria Times. Wow. And then after that, when I was in my the last of my two years at UBC, I got hired on part-time at the Vancouver Sun. So I covered municipal councils on Monday nights. And uh, then I worked the following summer at the Vancouver Sun. But I realized after all that, that journalism really wasn't for me. It was crazy. I would do ridiculous things. And my friends who were, they're still in journalism, they all remind me of this periodically. In fact, one reminded me of it just a couple of weeks ago, how four o'clock in the morning, I would hop on my bicycle and bike back to the Vancouver Sun, haul my story off the spike at the editor's desk and make a change. Because I would lie there in bed thinking, oh, I should have said it this way. I mean, I really, this was insane. I drove myself crazy. I drove my roommate crazy. So that was one thing. I was just too, I was a writer. I wasn't a journalist. I mean, journalists are writers too, but I was too finicky about the small stuff, really. The other thing I realized was I would be sent to do a story about which I knew absolutely nothing and the preparation would be often you would go to the the newspaper library called the morgue and you would get the file on the subject and you would get read it at your desk if you had time sometimes you only had time to read it in the taxi on your way to wherever the story was then you would pay attention to it might be a municipal council meeting it might be a speech it could be anything and you would make your notes and you would go back and you would write your story and i became quite aware that a lot of the time I did not really understand 
the context, the big picture. I didn't really understand what I was writing about. I suspect that would have changed if, I, if I'd stayed in journalism, but it bothered me immensely because I was a newspaper clipping person, and I believed what I wrote in the newspaper. And I started to realize that maybe it wasn't the be-all and end-all to information. And I, I felt it wasn't comfortable for me. Interesting. And it's interesting that when I was in at Legal Aid and my job was to work with the media, the number of errors that would be made in the articles that would be written in spite of every effort to get these complex issues explained simply, well, it was it was constant. And I don't fault the reporters for that. I know that, you know, I know the circumstances under which they're operating. But it was interesting to me that that, that, that remained a problem. So how did that inform your sense of reality in terms of interpreting other forms of information that were coming at you? Because to be on the inside of that and coming to the self-realization of, wow, I don't necessarily know exactly what I'm talking about, but I'm kind of faking my way through it a little bit because this is what the job requires. Did that wind up giving you any insight into other areas that you were taking a look at through life? Because I think so much of life is kind of like that. We have this belief that's probably quite misguided that, oh, this is this is the absolute truth. This this person is coming at it from like such a very strong place of interpretation and background and they know exactly what they're talking about. And and I, I don't even think we think critically about it. We mm-hmm. just sort of take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Did you wind up having any other things come into your life that shaped that a little bit in that way? Well, first of all, I think that the effect that had on me in terms of how I would read newspapers or magazines or books would be that I would tend to trust an in-depth long article far more than I would a short report. I also have, I I, I should clarify, a lot of the mistakes weren't super critical Mm. mistakes, right? They'd just be mistakes that you'd rather not have made. But I tend to, I knew, I knew a lot of reporters who who were amazing, amazing journalists. Rod Mickleborough, amazing labor reporter. Mark Hume, incredible environmental reporter. Uh, on and on and on they go. And I admire them a lot. But what made it possible for them to do really good work was they got a beat, which doesn't exist too much anymore. Okay, can uh, you describe what a beat means for us? Uh, yeah, it means like being assigned a certain area, like Francis Bula would do Vancouver City Council. That was her beat. Rod, his beat was the labor movement, right? And so those people became very knowledgeable and very adept at what they at what they would write about. And and so I would learn I, I tended to trust what I would read from people who I knew had the context and the in depth. I I would tend to skim just one off stories. And this isn't necessarily it's neither good nor bad. I just tend to I tend to trust magazine articles more. Because I know that there's more time and research and thought that goes into it. But at the same time, my degree is in in history. And I think what I came out of that studying with was a certain degree of skepticism and understanding that there's bias in everything. Mm. And so I already knew that there would be bias 
in, I, I mean, journalism is supposed to be completely objective, but it can't be. No. It can't be. We all have our biases. Yeah. And they are going to enter um, what we do to a greater or lesser extent, depending on how strongly you feel about keeping your bias out. But it's always going to be there in, in the quotes you select. If you think there's two sides to a story, then you won't look for a third. You know, all kinds of things like that. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know if that makes any sense. No, that actually does clarify things uh, for me. I appreciate appreciate that. I, it, you know, it's actually just something I want to uh, get back to as well, too, that's kind of uh, been lingering in the back of my mind a little bit here is that you always said that you had a, a strong sense of justice from the time that you were uh, little. Do you know where that came from? Where that first uh, first arose within you? I think probably initially from my dad. My dad was very, very strong on ethics and justice. He was he was the person who taught me to never, ever be racist. Now, he wasn't perfect. None of us are. But he was adamant you never judge a person by the color of their skin. And we lived in a little, uh, pretty much a largely white enclave, white English enclave, except that Mount Allison University was there, and so there would be international students. Mm. And so both my parents made efforts to um, make sure that their children were introduced to people of other cultures and other colors. My dad was a radio technician for CBC Radio Canada International, and they would bring people in from other countries. And I remember him bringing those people home for dinner. And so we would meet people from other parts of the world. And, and that, that was um, a big part of it. Also, my dad was a member of a union, and when when strike was on the table, he would be talking a lot about, you know, justice in the workplace and the bosses and the workers and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think a lot of it came from him. Nice. I don't know quite where this bit came from, but I, you know, your parents save silly little things. <laughs> I mean, one time I was going through a file my mother had, and she had kept this silly little story I had written I couldn't have been more than 10. Wait, the next town over was Dorchester, and Dorchester Penitentiary is in Dorchester, New Brunswick. And I'd written this story about a prisoner who'd escaped from prison. And the story was all about how I helped this poor person. I had sympathy for this person. I wasn't frightened. I, I have no idea where that came from. No idea. So... Okay. What can I say? <laughs> no, that's that's good. Actually, I want I would like to talk about your father a little bit more as well too, because I know that uh, you wrote a book about him. And uh, actually, maybe we could just start with uh, your dad's first name, Jack. Jack. Okay. And so, within the last few years, when when did you publish this book? This book is waiting for the albatross. It came out in 2015. I started writing it here on Pender, actually. By This was in 2011. By that time, my friend Anne had died, very sadly. And uh, Arne was on his own, and we used to come over and visit. And I said, Arne, can I come over on February 11th and start work on this diary of my dad's that I found? I, don't, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it. So he said, sure, come on over. So... The genesis of the book that is now was here on Pender, which pleases me to no end. <laughs> anyway, the book started out, I, my dad had a diary that he wrote when he was 21, turning 22, in 1936. And it was five-month-long diary, 
written while he was a deckhand on a freighter. It was his first job away from home. And the freighter went from Canada down the eastern seaboard through the Panama Canal over to New Zealand and Australia and then back. And my dad picked it up in Halifax and the journey ended in Montreal. So it went from February to June 1936 in the Great Depression. And my dad was a really good diarist. He, the, the, the diary I found really compelling. And so I wanted to do something with it. So I started trying to do something with it here on Pinder. And so how, how did that wind up evolving in terms of, because I haven't uh, read the book myself, so in terms of taking the words from your father and then turning them into a work of your own, how did that process take place? Well, first of all, it's not just a work of my own. I, I call it co-authored, okay. even though my poor dad had nothing to say about it. <laughs> but I felt his presence as I was doing it. But it didn't start, it, it, where it wound up was as a book of poetry. And the poetry, is, it's all his words, and it's my manipulations of his words. So the diary, by the time I actually started working with it, publishers weren't particularly interested in publishing diaries anymore. So I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? And I wound up deciding to use his words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs in some cases, and turn them into poetry. So a lot of the stories were similar throughout the diary, as they would be, because they're doing very repetitive work, and the journey is the same journey from one port of call to another, and, and the antics on shore are pretty similar. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose what I liked the best of his descriptions of various situations, and, and there were also many situations that were unique. And I took those and I rearranged them into different forms of poetry that feature repetition. Because for me, the idea of having refrains throughout the poem was kind of a metaphor for the repetitive nature of the life they lived. Oh. And so um, that's what I did. So my dad's words, my dad's stories, my manipulations. But the book didn't start out being a book of poetry. And when I first came here, I thought that what I was going to do was start on the same day that my dad started his diary all those 75 years later or whatever, I think it was 75 years later, and write my own diary and try to have a back-and-forth conversation with wow. my dad over the years. I'm afraid it was a dismal failure. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not a bad poet, but I'm definitely not a diarist. And it just, the conversation didn't work. It just... I don't know. It, I couldn't I couldn't make it be what I wanted it to be. But in the course of doing that, at one point I thought, okay, I'm going to divide this into chapters and I'll open each chapter with a poem that I will write using dad's words. And so I had just a few very short poems. I think I started out with five chapters or something. And when I finally decided to abandon the prose project, I thought that I would just make it the book of poetry. So that's what I did. It's amazing how often that happens, that when you embark in a creative endeavor, that yeah. you have a very clear vision at the very beginning of this is how it's going to be. Yeah. And then you can wind up banging your head until you realize, wait a second, let's just shift this a little bit and try something a little bit different. But I'm really curious about to, what did you learn about your dad through this experience? I learned that 
my sweet tooth comes not only from my mother, but also from my father. <laughs> uh, he, I learned that he was a very naive, green young man who grew up in a, an extremely conservative family. And I said earlier how my dad was my first teacher when it came to not being racist. Mm -hmm. And when I first started reading the diary, I don't know, in the one of the first three entries, maybe, he wound up in Halifax getting ready to board the ship, and he used the N-word, talking about this large man who walked into the diner where he was, and he was frightened. And I was, I was just gobsmacked. I thought, wait a minute, how can this be? My dad taught me not to be racist, and here he is using a racist word and exhibiting kind of not great behavior. And throughout the diary, there were several instances. There was an instance in Panama, I think it was, where they had segregated fountains, and he was talking about that, and he commented somewhere, as it should be. And I thought, what? My dad was still alive when the civil rights movement was starting, and I know he did not support this sort of stuff. So I was so upset about this. I, I went to, a, to see a, a guy, Steve Duguid, a history professor I knew at SFU. I'd audited one of his courses, and he, he taught me a lot about not judging history by today's standards. And I thought, I need to talk to Steve Duguid about this. And so I met with him, and he was great. And he talked a lot about how things were then and how things are now, and don't be so harsh. And I was still feeling really troubled. And at that time, I was getting to know a marvelous poet, Renee Saragini Saklikar, who she and I talked a lot about what we were each writing. And so I talked to her about this. And even she said, oh, I feel so bad for your father. You're being so hard on him. So I had to really rethink this stuff. And then my mother said to me, you know, that's just the way it was then. We didn't have another word then. We didn't know another word. Mm, and she said, I truly don't ever feel like I ever thought I was better than a person of color or that I disliked them or had any hatred toward them. And certainly your father didn't. And she said, you know, but we grew up... There was never, where they were in St. Stephen, New Brunswick, there was never somebody of a different color. The first time she saw somebody who was black, she just stared because it was new to her. She said, you got to understand, you know, things aren't always the same all through. And so through all these different conversations, I learned not just about my dad, but about all of us. We change we grow, we learn. And it made me very optimistic about people and the world. And I realized my dad in the war was very lucky. In the war, he traveled the world. He wound up being the um, Sparks, the radio man on the airplanes that flew from Newfoundland and Quebec over to England, taking bombers over to England. Um, it was called the Ferry Command. It wasn't water, it was air. So he flew bombers to Australia, to India, to Africa. He was everywhere. 
And I wish he were still alive so I could talk to him about this, but I think that changed him immensely. I think it challenged the way he was raised in his very conservative family and made him think about people in the world differently than the way he thought about them when he was on that freighter. And so it, it deepened my understanding about how, how we learn and how we change and, and how we really can't judge people by what they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah, definitely. We spoke about this very thing upstairs before we began. And yeah. uh, it's, it's fascinating. I think what uh, really stands out to me is that you had a piece of information that was bothering you. And you did something with that. You mm-hmm. went on a bit of a search and looking for some answers and questioning it and looking into it to find some more understanding mm-hmm. and uh, eventually some solace mm-hmm. with it. With that, that led to what it sounds like a further, greater understanding about, uh, you know, just beyond understanding your father, mm-hmm. but understand the world at large. It's, yeah. it's great. I just wanted to, uh, to ask about your mom next as well too. And, uh, maybe if you just want to tell us a little bit, uh, and you mentioned to me, uh, before we started that your mom passed away six months ago and I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Thanks. Um, your mother's first name. Rosalie, Rosalie. which she didn't like. So she went by Ro. Okay. But her, that was her middle name. She actually always wished she had stuck to her guns as a kid and said, I want to be called Ellen because that was her first name, Ellen. And she always felt more like an Ellen. Um, Anyway, but she was Roe. And my mom was a very, very interesting person. She would say she was a dabbler. She was very talented. She could draw, like my dad. My dad also could draw. She played the piano. She did leather work. She played the clarinet. She did calligraphy. She, she just experimented all over the place doing anything creative. For her paid work, she was a, a secretary, a typist, and stenographer. And she wound up being a single parent because my dad died when I was 14. She had three daughters, my older sister, me, my younger sister, who was severely disabled, and uh, she did it all. Um, she made it look easy to me, it, and although I know it was not easy. So yeah, she was a very incredible, strong, and strong-willed woman. She was the matriarch. What my mom said went. <laughs> so yeah, both she and my dad were always very supportive and encouraging of me, when I was little and I wanted to be a writer, they always, they were always, everything I did was, was, oh my gosh, it was terrible. But no, they were always saying, that's very good, dear. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. 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 Right on. Well, thanks for sharing. Jack and Roe. Yeah. Jack right and on. Roe. Part of the, uh, the stories that brought you here, your parents. Yes, they are. <laughs> Definitely. Well, maybe let's lead back into a little bit of uh, more Pender stuff here and, and uh, touch on that a little bit. So, you made the move here in 2012. Yep. And so how has uh, your experience been for you and your husband being on Pender Island since that time? Oh, it's the best thing we could have ever done. Absolutely fabulous. I wasn't sure. I, well, I, I was sure. I was sure that Bill would be fine. He'd only ever lived in cities. But he always treated the city like a village. And indeed, a few months after we were here, people would say, so, Sandy, how are you guys settling in? And Bill would answer, he said, well, it's taken me two months. It's taken Sandy two minutes. 
<laughs> so yeah, it's it's really really good, and it's been wonderful in so many ways. This community is so special, and I know everybody you've interviewed has said the same thing. But it's amazing, you know. My friend Kate Braid, before I even moved here, told everybody she knew here. She and her partner John Steves have a place here, um, so they're here part time. And she has been here since the early 70s. So has John, actually. They have a long history here. So they know lots of people. And Kate told all her writing friends, my friend Sandy Shreve is moving to Pender. And I still hear people say, tell me that now. <laughs> anyway, before I even moved here, Andrea Spaulding sent me an email and said, let's have lunch when you get here. Yeah. So that was just so great. So we did that, and we became friends. And my friend Zoe Landale, uh, let's see, we moved here Thanksgiving weekend. And on Halloween, she had a potluck dinner for us so we could meet their friends on Pender. And that became a, a group that we got together for regular potlucks. Bill came around to calling it Potluck Pender because we're always doing potlucks. So socially, it's been wonderful. We've got lots of friends and it's comfortable. We we just feel like we've settled right in. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. Well, you mentioned Kate and Andrea and Zoe uh, as people. Sounds like who have helped you along the way, and maybe we could lead into the second traditional question we always get to on this podcast, which is uh, who's helped you along the way on Pender Island. Well, certainly Arn, um, who's an old old friend, and and when we first moved here, he showed us lots of the ropes, and uh, he uh, at that time was on the um, Parks Commission. And uh, Bill's not into hiking, but I am. And so Arn would show me all the different hiking trails around the island. And that was fabulous. There are a lot of people. But the one person who comes to mind is Eve Pollard, who pushed me to join the photo club. And at that time, I was doing photography, moving toward abstract photo art kind of stuff with my photography. And so going to the photo club was fabulous. I met wonderful people there like Diane McDonald and Nikki Roberts and many others, um, Hans Tamamaji, Ken Sawatsky, people who are really good at what they do and so generous in sharing their knowledge and their skills. So I learned an enormous amount there. Let's see. I'd have to say Judy Walker is huge for me because um, at, I think, the second art show I did at the winery, uh, that was with Monica Bennett and um, Nancy Silo. She looked at a couple of my pieces and she came over to me and she leaned into me and she said, you should paint. And she had no idea that that is the one thing I've always wanted to do my whole life, even more than poetry. But I was convinced that the injustice of the world was that my mother could draw and my father could draw and I couldn't draw at all. And so I just always assumed I couldn't paint. And she said, you should paint. And it turned, that was in uh, 2015, the summer of 2015. And that fall, she was doing a six-week course for beginners. So I took the course. I was terrible, just terrible. <laughs> but I was also hooked. And so since then, I've mostly focused on painting, and it's all Judy's, it's all Judy's fault, <laughs> but I'm loving it. And uh, so that's very huge. I also would really like to acknowledge the tradespeople on this island. 
they have been spectacular. Whenever we've needed something, and we've needed a lot, because neither Bill nor I are particularly handy at things that need doing and fixing and stuff like that. And the tradespeople here have been marvelous at coming and doing work that needs to be done and doing it when they say they'll do it and doing really good job. So there's people like Brent Marsden, Alex Fraser, Lance Mueller does lots of stuff for us. Um, I'm leaving people out. I know I'm leaving people out. But anyway, there's all kinds of them and they're great. That's great. That's that's actually really a beautiful mention that uh, it, it's such a huge part of of what uh, what makes up the community, the tradespeople. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, oh, uh, Kristen Taggart and Leanne Mueller, both of whom helped hugely with the gardens. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it goes on and oh, 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 and um, James Constable, who does the chimney and deals with the roof and the gutters and on and on and on. There's fa- so many. Fantastic. <laughs> So the tradespeople and and people involved in the uh, the arts community on the island. The arts the arts community here is amazing. Everybody is so willing to help, and nobody has secrets, right? They'll all tell you how to do something and the best way they've found and the the best product they've found and where to get this and how to do the other thing. It's it's, it's really really fun. That's great. Yeah. And you know, it's so cool to hear you talk about how you, you had a block to drawing or to painting and that it was encouraged by somebody on the island and you followed through on it. And so what is it about that particular style of creativity of art? So like, what are you getting out of that experience now? Like, how is that feeding you? Well, you know, pretty much the same way as any art form. Earlier when we were talking about writing and talking about the waiting for the albatross and how the project turned into something completely different, I find the same thing with the visual art quite often. I will start out with an idea, and what I wind up with is usually quite different from what I started out trying to do, unless it's something very specific. At a certain point, I had a photograph of a heron, and it's on my Facebook or it used to be on my Facebook banner. And people would say, you should print that. It's a great photograph. And I couldn't because the camera I took with it with wasn't very good. And I couldn't blow it up. It lost all its resolution. So about, I don't know, a couple of years into learning how to paint, and I will be learning this for the rest of my life, <laughs> um, I thought, gee, I wonder if I could paint that heron. It took me ages, but I did it. But that sort of turned out the way I wanted. That that was a very start to finish. It wasn't it wasn't something I could play around with. I had to figure out how to make it look like a heron. Most of the time, I'm I'm intrigued by abstract, and so that often I'll have an idea that turns into something quite different from the original idea. And what I'm getting out of it, I don't know. It just gives me such intense joy to be there with paint and see something take shape in front of my very eyes it's it's glorious and playing with color and and watching color do things on the canvas that I don't necessarily expect it's uh it's glorious 
Nice. You know, I was, I've was i been really intrigued about uh, art and the process of art and actually was feeling uh, feeling a little glum a couple of weeks ago, feeling a little down. And I was recognizing the fact that uh, creativity was kind of missing from my life for a little period of time there. And I think it's so important. It's so important to have that in your life and that it comes in so many different forms, creativity. Mm-hmm. And uh, even through people's work, there's so much opportunity to be creative. But just thinking with a creative mind, and I think has such a very dramatic impact on our mental health. It puts your mind in a different, this is going to sound really woo-woo, and I'm not much of a woo-woo person, but it puts your mind in a different place. And it's very freeing that way. Just listening to you talk, I, it made me think it, that the word really is freeing. I used to say about writing that the wonderful thing is when when I'm really in the writing, I'm on another plane. I, it's like I'm in a different world and this one doesn't exist. I'm somewhere else. That's really special and that's really freeing. And it, it's, it's such a great feeling I can hardly describe. I don't get to that place in the same way with the visual art particularly. But I do get somewhere else. I get inside this picture or this thing that I'm trying to make take shape. And so yeah, I think I think that the the worries and the controversies and the dilemmas of the day-to-day world that we're living in kind of go away when you're doing that and yeah. you're creating, you're you're making. There's something so rewarding about making something and making something beautiful that's yeah yeah definitely and it's interesting that i've noticed as of late and this might be more of a recent phenomenon or not i'm not sure but just people's reasons for doing things put them online and to show them and to get feedback and you you know i like i heard it spoken by somebody a little while ago is that well if you don't get two thousand likes for this what's the point of doing it right and and this is this is a bit of a mentality that exists that uh you know you need to have accolades or you need to have people responding to what you're doing but it's just the act of doing art for the sake of doing it yeah it feels so good yeah and you know the the external accolades and feedback and all those things like those that's nice to get and i think that helps to encourage you to move it along as well but it's just engaging it and i think is such a such a rewarding process just the simple act of even just doing a little doodle in your notebook yeah it can uh, can wind up just making you feel really good well the other thing too is When you're doing the work, you're trying to achieve something and you're trying to do it as best you can. And once you feel you've done it as best you can, there's nothing better. Mm. There's nothing better. And I always tell people, it's okay if you don't like what I do. Some of what I do is kind of weird and it's not to everybody's taste. And that's fine. It's not that it doesn't matter to me. I, I, I do like it a lot when people like what I've done. Of course, it's it's rewarding. It, and affirmation is always helps you keep going. Mm-hmm. But I have things on my wall that I know nobody but me likes, but I still like it and it stays on my wall. And until I don't like it anymore, that's where it'll be. Sometimes 
as time, and in fact, this happened just not too long ago. There's a piece I did about two years ago, and I achieved something with it. I tried to do something technical, and it worked, and I was very proud of it. But I've noticed over the last six months, every time I look at it, I cringe. Like I don't, I don't like the colors anymore. I, it's not, it, it doesn't please me anymore. So the other day, I covered it up. I did an exercise. There was something I'd been curious about, and I saw a video of somebody showing how to do this thing, a technique that I was curious about, so I tried it. And I'm so glad I've covered that piece up. I'm really excited about this new technique. And that's great. But it's it comes off the wall when I don't like it anymore, not when other people don't like it anymore. Mm. And you mentioned earlier about uh, doing your best, that feeling good about if, if somebody doesn't like it, you know that you did your best yeah. in that. And there's such a reward to that. Anything we do in our lives, because if you do your best at anything, you've got mm-hmm. nothing to feel bad about. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Actually, I just wanted to go back and touch on something else. Uh, I wanted to talk about the uh, Poetry in Transit project that you were oh, involved in. right. Yeah, because I really would like people to hear about this. And I'd like to know more about it myself as well, too, because you sent me a little bit of information about it. But um, you were involved in uh, something called the Poetry in Transit project. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. It was my baby. <laughs> um, back in the early 90s, at some point, early to mid-90s, the then president of BC Transit was interviewed by the Vancouver Sun because he wanted to tell everybody that he had seen the poetry in transit, what's it called, in New York, poems on the subway, I think. I'm not exact. I Somehow it's gone out of my head what they actually call it. And he wanted to do that in Vancouver. He thought that was a wonderful thing. So he put out a call for people to submit poems And they were going to put poems in ad spaces on the buses. And so, like every poet I knew, I submitted some poems and then didn't hear a thing. And didn't hear anything. And didn't hear anything. And finally, I I thought, this is crazy. And by then, I'd just gotten a job at Legal Aid in communications. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to, now I know there's a communications person at BC Transit. I'm going to phone them up and find out if they can tell me what's happening. So I got hold of, I eventually got hold of the person I needed to talk to. And he told me that the project was shelved because they received thousands of poems. And administratively, they just, they just couldn't handle it. They didn't know how they were going to do this with the staff that they had and all the rest of it. So thousands might have been an exaggeration, but they received a lot more than They're they expected. Overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed. So I went away from that conversation, and I've done organizing work all my life, and I, I, I'm pretty good at it. And I thought, I'm sure I can come up with a way to do this project that is administratively simple and economic. So I sat down and I drew up a proposal that was quite straightforward, and I went to to them and uh, showed it to them, and they said, well, I think you need a co-sponsor, but it's looking, it, it's looking pretty good. So at least I think I went to them first. I might have actually gone first to the people who co-sponsored it. I've This is like 30 years ago. That's okay. 25 years ago. I don't remember the order of things. But the other person I talked to was Margaret Reynolds at the Association of Book Publishers of BC. And part of my idea was that that we would focus on BC poetry 
and it had to be poetry that had been previously published in book form. So we've already got an initial screening, if you will, of the quality of the poetry. So that takes care of some of the, the issue of how do we decide what's good or not good or what we should or shouldn't use, whatever. And so this, this association, their focus is focusing on promoting BC books. So they liked the idea. So they came on as co-sponsors. And through them, we applied for a Canada Council grant to pay for the printing of the poetry panels that would go on the buses. So at some point in there, BC Transit got on board. They liked the idea. They thought it was manageable. The way we would choose the poems was, was that there would be me as the project coordinator, a representative from BC Transit who wound up being, being from their uh, printing communications side, and a representative from the Book Publishers Association. So we were the, the panel that put out the call for the poems, and the poems came in, and we sat down, and we chose the poems, and it was hard because we were limited to, I think, 16 poems, and I think they made 100 copies of each poem, so that's 1,600 poems, and they went in buses around Vancouver, and within a few months, they expanded it to Victoria, and my idea had been it would start in Vancouver for the first year, and then in subsequent years, the poems that had been in Vancouver would then go throughout the province but BC Transit changed that to Vancouver and Victoria and then throughout the province. So that was great. They, they were very, very keen on the project. And so it started, and I coordinated the project for the first three years. And it, it wasn't overly time-consuming, but I also had a very time-consuming job. And between that and the job and various other things that I was doing, I wasn't having a whole lot of time to write. So I thought, if I haven't put this on a firm enough footing to keep going by passing the torch, so be it. But I think it is solid enough. So the Association of Book Publishers took on the coordinating role because they saw that it was pretty doable. And I think they even simplified it more after I left. And so they carried the torch after that. And it's still going on. It's got to be at least in its 25th year coming up to 25 years. A few years ago, we had the 20th anniversary of the project. Thanks for doing that. Oh, people come up and thank me all the time. Really? And, and I keep saying, you know what? At this point, Margaret Reynolds, she's now retired, so whoever has taken her place is now going to get the kudos. But she really is the one that kept it going all those many years. I just got it started. But yeah, I'm very proud of it. It's a fabulous project. And every September... Word on the Street, which is now called Word Vancouver, they launched the new round of poems, and that just happened, what's today, Sunday? I think that just happened yesterday. Okay. And so the new batch of poems is up, so look up when you're in the bus, and you'll see more poems. Yeah, whenever I'm in Vancouver and I look up and I see some poetry instead of, instead of an ad, it brightens my day. <laughs> I have to tell you, the feedback that we've had from the public over the years has been amazing. There was uh, the publishers, they, these things go to the publishers and they got or or else to transit. And one note sticks with me in particular. And it's uh, it was from this couple and they said, they met reading a poem on the bus and it got them talking. 
and they wound up getting married. Mm, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there's a bunch like that from that project. Wow. So, yeah. Neat. Yeah, it is very neat. How many years have you been writing poetry for? All my life. All your Ever life. since I could write. Ever since you could write. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. My story about that is when I was little, and I, it dawned on me one day that my doctor's name rhymed with the word turtle, and I had a pet turtle. And I wrote a little ditty that involved the rhyming of turtle, Dr. Hurtle. <laughs> and somehow I got the word myrtle in there. <laughs> it's a terrible little ditty. But my parents thought it was wonderful. And that just, I don't know, I must have a big ego. That got me going. <laughs> That's funny. Did you ever did you ever read this to the doctor? Or did oh, the no, doctor know? I don't no, think no. he ever knew. No. <laughs> Although who knows, my parents might have told him. Come to think of it, it never occurred to me to ask. Maybe. <laughs> Funny. I was just thinking about uh, winding it up in a little bit here, but uh, I just wanted to see if there's anything else that you want to touch on that we didn't touch on. Um, any any subjects that you'd like the uh, people of Pender Island and uh, further abroad to, to hear about Sandy Shreve? Wow, I think we've covered an awful lot. My mind's kind of drained at the moment. I can't really think of anything else. No. That's okay. Yeah. Sandy, this has been really, really fantastic. I so appreciate this. Thank you for coming in. It's really like... I get a lot of joy out of doing these and uh, it's really fun. It's really fun to get to sit down and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to hear you talk about the stories of your, your past. Well, it's been fun, Chris, and I want to thank you for making it easy and comfortable. It's actually been a very enjoyable afternoon. I was a bit nervous, but but you took care of that. Okay. okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll end it off if there's if there's nothing else. I do always like to leave the last word if there's anything that you uh any words of wisdom or uh thoughts or uh parting words that you want to uh, put out to the people of Pender. Maybe not even just for uh for this time period, but in the future as well too because this is a little bit of a historical document I'd like to uh think of it as that I hope people will be listening years to come. Anything you want to uh end off with? Treasure your community. No matter where you are, treasure it. Good one. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks, Chris. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Sandy very, very much for doing that interview. That was super fun. And to honor that interview, I decided I'd come to George Hill. So George Hill is located on the North Island. And to get here, I drove kind of pretty close to the tip of the North Island and went up Bridges Road and then Upper Terrace Road and parked and hiked up pretty steep little hill for about 10 minutes and got to the top and at the top here there is a beautiful beautiful view and it's kind of hemmed in with trees for part of it but at least 180 degrees is wide open to ocean and other islands and it's absolutely beautiful up here and the reason I decided to come here was because of what Sandy said about sanitizing the work that she was doing and how she brought the important information to the top of it and whenever I come to George Hill I feel like when I reach the top I'm at the important part taking in this breathtaking view and something else I wanted to add before I close off here was this week I was rereading a book called Adam Cara by John O'Donohue. And I found this quote that really brought home the idea of what this podcast is about. And the quote is this, all perception requires clearance. 
If things are too close to you, you cannot see them. Frequently, that is why we value so little the people who are really close to us. We are unable to step back and behold them with the sense of wonder, critique, and appreciation they deserve. Nor do we behold ourselves either, because we are too close to the rush of our lives. So when I read that, it really hit me that that's such a great description of what this podcast is meant to be about. It's about finding a deeper appreciation of those closest to us and thus finding a greater appreciation of ourselves. So once again, thank you to Sandy for doing this podcast. Thank you to Tarmigan Arts for helping to support it. Thank you to Ben McConkie for doing the theme music for this show. And thank you for listening. Until next time.